Welcome to episode 236 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So today, on this episode, whatever day people are listening to it on, of course, we're embarking on a whole new series, and it's a series about the covenants that we find in the scriptures. Yes. Yeah, we're excited to, to, to launch off on this. We've mentioned uh, a little bit in the past that we're going to try to do some more of these short series where we take a, a single kind of theological topic and we sort of unfold that topic over the course of a couple different episodes rather than trying to to cram everything in. Uh, we got a lot of great feedback about our, our Lord's Supper series. We got a lot of great feedback when we did the series on different heresies and heretics. So uh, yeah, so I'm stoked. I love I love covenant theology, and I love talking about these different uh, biblical covenants that we see uh, and kind of how they apply and how they interact with our life and how, how they help us understand what's going on in the scriptures. And to make this even more meta, one of the things I appreciate about these kinds of series is, for me, it's kind of like we get a bunch of luggage and then we unpack it. Like, who loves unpacking? Maybe the only thing worse than unpacking is packing, like if you're going on a trip. But this idea of getting all of these suitcases and then opening them up and taking everything out and getting a sense for what's what was in them and what's going on. I have always found this really useful for those who have tried to unpack something for me. And so I hope that this series will be really, really useful to others. The only thing that gave me pause was your pause right at the beginning when I said that's the series we're doing. And I thought you were going to be like, what? That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I think actually I just like hadn't taken a good enough breath. So I had to like get some air in my lungs in order to talk about it. Listen, you scared me again. The way you were like, yeah, I thought you were going to be like, this is, this is a false start. We got to start this episode all over again, because actually we're not talking about that at all today. I have no idea why you even thought that. So before we get into all this good stuff with the first covenant that we're going to speak of, let's speak also about affirmations and denial. So as usual, I will turn it over to you, good brother, and ask you, which one would you like to start with? So I'm going to start, I'm going to start with my denial and hopefully that will keep Ooh. me on a little bit of a, oh, a little bit of a timer up. here because I, this could be one of those ones that just gets out of hand. So I, I'm denying Doug Wilson fanboys and I'm denying Doug Wilson <laughs> fanboys in a very particular, particular sense. So this is now the episode. Here we go. Everybody yeah. start your clocks. So really, no, it's just the last episode is really what this is. So <laughs> Last week we went, we came out hard against Game of Thrones, making the argument that there are certain things that Christians just cannot be involved in and should not participate in. Um, and, and so, online, uh, there's always conversations about Doug Wilson going on, right? That's not a new thing. But online, somebody asked the question, like, should should we read Doug Wilson's books? And I made the argument that no, we shouldn't, because Paul tells us to not even associate with someone who is uh, claiming to be a Christian, but is involved in sexual immorality. And of course, everybody, what are you talking about? Doug Wilson's never been involved in sexual immorality. Well, without getting too deep in the weeds and too uh, involved, because I don't want to commit the sin myself, Doug Wilson recently published a book that is called Ride Sally Ride, and it features in large part a sex robot. 
uh, with lots of graphic descriptions of sexual scenes and vulgar language. Uh, and as we know from studying the confessions and the catechisms, that filthy language and sexual imaginings, uh, as well as having lurid books, are all things that uh, the Reformed tradition has considered a violation of the Seventh Commandment, which right. governs sexual morality. So the fact that he had to imagine these things in order to write them, and then he had to edit them in order to write this, and then he had to publish it with his own publishing company, and then he had to publicize it with his own publication and public, you know, publicity, uh, it's pretty clear that this is something that's going through his head a lot, and he's dwelling on it. So uh, I, I don't, I'm not making the argument that any anyone who's ever said something uh, of a sexual nature that is inappropriate that we should cast them out of the kingdom. Uh, I'm not even really making the argument that we should cast Doug Wilson out of the kingdom, but the Bible's pretty clear that when when you have someone who claims to be a Christian and is engaging in this sort of willful sexual immorality, that you should no longer associate with them. So uh, Doug fits that category. Just, just in this one little thing, he fits that category. And that's not even to account for other issues in his life and ministry that involves sexual um, decisions as far as marrying certain people to each other and causing problems in his congregation as a result of it. Strictly just on the merits of this book, he has met the definition of someone who is sexually immoral and we should not uh, associate with him. And so, uh, of course, his fanboys go crazy and, and, you know, it becomes this inflamed a Moscow man bad. Uh, so you obviously have Doug Wilson derangement syndrome, which is clearly not the case. Uh, it's a very clear logical argument with lots of evidence and lots of biblical references. But uh, yeah, so I'm just denying that the fanboys who who seem set on supporting him no matter what he does, no matter how bad this stuff he publishes, no matter how filthy the language he uses, no matter how controversial and how contentious he seems to be, uh, he just they, they just seem to be totally diehards who won't even consider the criticisms. Uh, not to say there aren't people on the other side of the spectrum who have not even taken the time to assess him and to consider whether or not the criticisms are valid right. uh, from a, a or whether the criticisms are invalid. Um, obviously, I think they are. But there is this this species of Internet uh, trolls that just will refuse to listen to any sort of criticism of Doug Wilson and just assume you hate the man because you are willing to make a statement that he's done or said something that isn't isn't perfect. Touch not the Lord's anointed kind of stuff. Right. So check this out. I'm going to do something I don't think we've ever done before. I'm going to cross over and oh, I'm man. going to take what you start as a denial and I'm going to move it into my affirmation. I don't oh, think man. we've ever done this. This before. is like a chiasm affirmation right here. Yes. <laughs> that is so good. A-B-B-A so, kind of style here. So Bible nerdy that I love it. I would hug you right now if we were in the same space. So here's the thing. I'm going to go with an affirmation this week that's for everybody. It's connected to everything you just said, and it centers around Game of Thrones, but isn't, of course, an affirmation of Game of Thrones. And that is, I'm affirming all of our amazing brothers and sisters who listened to us chat last week and gave us feedback. Some of that feedback was both for what we were saying and against what we we're saying. And I would say for the most part, it was genuine, it was loving, and it was kind for the most part. And one of the pieces of feedback that we received was somebody who wrote a very long email to us, uh, brother Nick. And I just want to share a couple of things about this because I think it ties in exactly with what you were saying. And he, this is his words, because I, I think it's, it's helpful to know that what we were saying, we were trying to express what we thought was fidelity to the scriptures and our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that there are non-negotiables. But this is what Nick writes. He says, quote, is my right or liberty to enjoy something more important 
then the holiness God is working in me, end quote. And I thought that is maybe like maybe brother Nick here just perfectly encapsulated our entire hour and a half long conversation yeah. in yeah. one sentence, because I think that's, that's what we were after. And in fairness to him, because again, people have been so kind in both challenging what we said and also agreeing with what we said. He also writes this, and I think this is so helpful. He says, quote, one point I wish you guys would have made is how interacting with Game of Thrones and like type content is actually advancing the cause of darkness in the world, end quote. And he goes on to say that whenever we make choices like this, it's not just about us. It's not about what we prefer to consume or what we think is appropriate per se. He's challenging all of us, including you and I, Tony, to again, assess everything under the rubric of scripture, but then to also, in addition to that, think about how this promulgates something, what it says that we're willing to engage in this kind of behavior. And some of this is just pure, purely about like where we spend our money, the books that we read, but we're communicating something. We're signaling something. And I found Brother Nick's email incredibly challenging. I found it both encouraging and I love that he was willing to call us out and say, listen, I think this was a fine conversation, but you also missed this point. So this affirmation is in many ways about our wonderful brothers and sisters who realize that we want them to come alongside us in this conversation. It's all of us in together, processing this stuff out and really getting after what the Bible requires of us in terms of living. And I love that so many people reached out to us and said that we want to live in this way. We, yeah. we want to walk according to the spirit. And that's important and I don't think we're the first ones to have voices to try to encourage us on that way. And our voices are far from perfect. We said this already, that if you go and listen to 235 episodes of us, you'll hear very honestly and transparently that we're moving through this journey, trying to refine our theology and more importantly, refine how our theology impacts our living. So whether it comes to Doug Wilson and Ride, Sully, Ride or Game of Thrones, like loved ones, we have to be about the Christian life or don't be about the Christian life. But there, yeah. there is no, did this just turn to Star Wars? Like there is no try? Like this, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm getting after here? Yeah. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it just goes back to what we've said, is that the Christian life is one of struggle and striving. And as long as we don't start to confuse what that struggle and striving is intended yes, to accomplish and what exactly. the purpose of that is, then we're okay. But if if your Christian life is not one of struggle and striving, then you have to ask the question if you actually are alive in Christ. Because if you're alive in Christ, you're going to fight against the sin that is present in your own life, the sin in, that's present in the lives of those around you and in the world at large. And I, I just, you know, there were so many emails and Facebook comments of people who have in the past struggled with this thing and have come to the right conclusion that that whatever this thing is, in this case it was Game of Thrones, but whatever it might be, that in the long run, none of that is worth anything in comparison with the glory of Christ. And so if, if we're not willing to give up a silly TV show, uh, on the even on the chance that it might be hindering our holiness or our sanctification, then are we really truly separated and devoted to Christ? Right. And I, I think I think the answer we came to is, well, you don't have a good reason to think you are if you're not willing to sacrifice for it. So yeah, I, I totally echo that affirmation. I'm not sure where we are in affirmation and denial land now. I think I think <laughs> my affirmation's next. Is that right? I think but we're crossing until, over. Before, before we get there, you are absolutely right. And I was just, I was really encouraged because when we had this conversation in episode 251, um, there was a lot of people who took sort of the, 
well, you're just trying to oppress my Christian liberty. You're trying to do this. You're trying to be legalistic. Not at all. Right. And there was a little bit of a little bit of that coming through in comments now. But by and large, the comments that I was seeing in the same groups, right, in the Reform Pub, in the Reform Brotherhood Facebook group, in our emails, those same venues, those comments are now much more oriented towards, yeah, right on. This is about holiness. This is about being committed to Christ, committed to the gospel. Uh, so it looks like the Reformed community that is building itself around our, our little podcast here is starting to move forward towards holiness as as uh, we all kind of move towards that goal together. Yeah, to, recap- to recapitulate a little bit, and this is dangerous because we could launch into like a whole other episode. I personally, and I think you'd agree with me, have no desire to hinder or press down or oppress any other Christian's liberty right. in Christ as we just d- define that in the literal sense. I do have this sense in my own life that I really want to live in obedience to Jesus and trust more and more that what he says in the scriptures, if we trust that is his word, it's inerrant, that I should just obey it outright and trust that later on I might see the fruit of that behavior that I don't yeah. understand now. But it's not my right to question because he knows best. Right. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. All these statements about what it means, particularly as a dude, if we can talk to dudes for just a second, to live in a way where sexual purity is the top of part of how you behave in every particular circumstance, I just can't see how we will ever be anything but blessed by honoring what Jesus teaches and being in some way regimented in our desire to follow that along. If that's legalism, then I would say with respect to that particular, like small, narrow minded view, like legalism in this small sense, I would say, so be it. I'd rather be legalistic when it comes to my sexual purity and know the benefits and the blessings and the abundance of life and the protection, quite honestly, through Jesus Christ, then to test that limit and to find myself in any way compromised, my marriage less than what it ought to be, or my relationship with my wife in some way diminished because I've chosen to test what I think are the bounds of Christian liberty as opposed to the way that Christ defines them, especially through the Apostle Paul. Yeah, yeah, you're right on. Okay, so now we get a crossover again. You're actually in the land of affirmation. All right. Well, mine is really straightforward. It's going to take a second. I'm affirming <laughs> preaching. Like it's the Lord's Day. Uh, I okay. sat under good preaching this morning. Um, I, I, I'm our church still has not returned to in-person worship. We're hoping to do that soon. So I, I long for the day when I'm actually sitting in, un, un, under preaching in the gathered physical gathering of the saints again. But uh, I just, it's such a gracious gift that God has given us. You know, when you, when you look at the way that the reformers reflect on preaching, the light of nature, the things that we can learn about God from observing nature and, and that he's revealed to us through nature are, it's so small. It's so minuscule compared to the glories of of grace that are given to us in the Bible. And God has chosen the vehicle of preaching to communicate that grace to us in, in a very real sense. So if you are a person that kind of sometimes sits and thinks like, oh man, I think just, I just would like to sing more songs or, I'd, you know, I wish that the sermon was shorter or, you know, I wish it was more entertaining. Just take a step back and realize like, this is, this is God speaking to you from the pulpit through, through a, a a jar of clay with crack, you know, a cracked vessel, but still God speaking to you from the pulpit. Um, you know, 
cross-reference our entire reform preaching series by Joel Beakey. Uh, but, but just sit back and think about that, that this isn't just some dude up in front, like teaching you something. He's not expositing Harry Potter. He's not giving you a lecture on astrophysics, right? He he's, he's God's chosen ordained agent who's speaking the word of God to you. So that's, that's something that I just, it was just struck me this morning when I was sitting, you know, I'm sitting on my couch in my living room on zoom, but I'm remembering this is the word of God being preached to me. Right on. That's great. I mean, that's like, we could, that should be a perennial affirmation. This idea of like, I so what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is make your preaching special, not by way of some of your manufacturing, some response to it, but just going in understanding that when you get to the Lord's day and however you're receiving your preaching right now, when you're receiving it, this is a crazy special thing. Like it's a, it's a miraculous and supernatural thing. It's not just a dude giving a talk. Right. It's not a Ted talk. No, it's not a Ted, like, yeah, like you're not thankful for your, what's what I'm trying to say here? You're, <laughs> I don't know. You're not welcome for our Ted talk. This is not right. a Ted talk. Like yeah. this is God giving you and delivering to you a powerful message by the way of the Holy Spirit, eternally contemporary in its application and its relevance. So I'm totally down with that. Like every day of the week and twice on the Lord's day. See what I did there? <laughs> That's some classic reform thought twice on the Lord's day. <laughs> That's good stuff. Where, where are our brothers and sisters who are willing to take all the amazing things we've said and translate them into bumper stickers? Where is that person? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess I could do it if I wanted to because we got that new <laughs> print shop thing going on, but I, I don't have the patience or cleverness for it. That's right. Well, my denial will be equally as brief as your affirmation was, which was in the course of, you know, us talking last week about this episode and which we kind of like lovingly dubbed the space maker in case again, people want to like hit that unsubscribe button. I thought it was so wonderful how, again, most of the people interacted with us. And I was just looking on that and thinking, my goodness, it's so good when Christian brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And part of that unity is the ability to have robust, deep, like almost soul wrenching conversations about things that touch us at deep emotional levels that confront us, that maybe even cut across us. And yet still at the end of the day, recognize in love that we're brothers and sisters. It seems like a simple thing, but what I was thinking was if it can't happen here, it can't happen anywhere. And I really mean that. Right. So I'm denying against brothers and sisters who would first be uncharitable toward one another or would decide that this idea of Christian family doesn't mean anything to them. And they express that by the way in which they go after one another, or that is like the normative or the precursor, which they use to like base or inform or derive or, you know, create all of their conversation. So I'm just denying against the fact that brothers and sisters, like when you're not loving toward one another, especially that at the onset, it is such a representation, especially to the outside world that Christianity is not really a family and that this idea of like supernatural bondedness coming together, being tightly coupled to one another because Jesus Christ as our brother has united us under our father, God, the father, that when we forsake that in the way that we approach one another, it does an amazing amount of damage. And it is, I think very illustrative as to where we actually are with understanding what it means to be part of the family of God. So please don't do that. Like there, there is reason to disagree. And sometimes you and I have talked about, we ought to disagree, but I think we start first from a place of charity and then we move into that disagreement when it is profound and necessary. But even so 
we do it with a fair amount of love. And that's the thing that ought to be the hallmark of all of our interaction, especially with one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. That's all oh, I that's, got. That's it? Okay. That's a, all right, I great. got nothing else for that one. That was just, so, it was just good. So this is the time where I introduce the segue? Yeah, you should introduce the segue. Okay. So like when I say pactum, you say salutis? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> we need, so somebody we needs to write a little rap. <laughs> What rhymes with salutis? So we are starting this series on <laughs> covenants in the scriptures, and we're beginning today with this idea of the covenant of redemption, which, I mean, you chose this, Tony, so of course I have to give you the credit. Not only did you pick the particular topic in the first covenant, but when you sent it to me, I was like, heck yeah, let's do that thing yeah. right now. And that's yeah. the best place to start. So let's start at the beginning, as they say. And can we start with this? Because this is the very first episode, let's talk like ever so briefly about what covenant is. So we can actually like kind of set this right context before we get into the specifics. Yeah. So it's a weird way for us to start this episode because the covenant of redemption is not a covenant in the same sense that the other covenants are. But (laughs) generally speaking, when we're talking about biblical covenants, what we're talking about is an agreement between two or more parties, but usually two. And there's usually some sort of agreement between these parties where there are um, stipulations, right? So a covenant right. equals stipulations. So that the terms of the covenant, the, the obligations that both parties have, sometimes they're mutual obligations in terms of they have the same obligations to each other. Sometimes it's one party has this obligation and this party has a different obligation, but there are obligations to each other. And then there are uh, sanctions, and the sanctions are either blessings or they're curses. And so uh, an example might be like, um, you know, if if uh, Jesse and I are making a covenant to meet at a certain place at a certain time, I might say, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you at the Seven Barrel Brewery and the first round will be on me. And then when Jesse doesn't show up, the the sanction or the curse of the covenant is that he doesn't get that first round, right? There's an implied sanction that Why if he doesn't show up. Why am I always being punished in your examples? That? Why am I always being punished in your examples? I don't know. I don't know. You're like the most prompt, temp, <laughs> like timely person that I know. So it's not. I see what you did. It's Fair kind enough. of ironic that uh, I would choose that option. Um, but yeah, so so there there are also different kinds of covenants. So you have what's what's called a sort of a royal grant covenant where the the king simply promises something to his subjects and then the subjects don't more or less don't have any specific obligation to that king. Um and then you have vassal suzerain treaties, right? So you have a, a, a greater king and a lesser king. And the greater king uh, has already usually delivered the lesser king from some sort of some sort of trial or some sort of oppression. And so the, the greater king establishes this covenant and says, here's, here's what I've done for you. Here is what now you must do for me. If you do what you what you are obligated to, here is how you will be blessed. If you fail to do what you are obligated to, here's how you will be cursed right. or punished. So that that's the basic structure of of a, a covenant, really, in anything, right? This we say biblical covenant, but when you sign a mortgage for your house, there's there's a stipulation, right? You will pay such and such amount of money on this schedule, and you will pay this amount of interest over this amount of time. There's usually, you know, the the blessing of that covenant is that once it's fulfilled, that house becomes yours and the bank no longer holds a claim to it. 
the curse of that covenant is if you fail to do so, then the, the bank takes your house back and there's also probably legal penalties. There's fines, there's fees, um, right? When you sign up for a cell phone, if you if you pay your monthly bill on time, here are the services that will be provided. If you, you know, sometimes it's if you pay early, here's this extra credit we're going to give you. And then the curse is if you don't pay, then we're going to shut off your phone. We're going to do this or that and the other thing. So these these things sometimes feel a little bit foreign and alien to us because we don't think in these categories. But we actually do really think in these categories. We just don't realize it. We're not used to calling it a covenant. And, and I think some of that is that in some circles... Um, the word covenant gets sort of mutated to be much more relational than it really is. You know, you think, well, it's your marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Well, plot twist, it's a covenant, which is a kind of contract, right? right? A marriage contract is a stipulated agreement between two parties and the blessings of the covenant come with the blessings of marriage and the curses of the covenant, if broken, comes with the threat of divorce or the threat of other kinds of things. So uh, all covenants are contracts not all contracts, I guess, technically are covenants. Exactly. But if you if you don't focus overly focus on that relational aspect, which gets overemphasized in some circles, then the concept of covenant actually is very straightforward and very natural to our minds. There's no doubt about that. We use them all the time. Basically, covenants are promises with consequences. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part in the Western world, we're used to promises like I promise to do this, I promise to show up, I promise that I'll make these payments. It's the consequences sometimes that we like to be released from. Right. And so what we're talking about here is something a little bit special. And to your point, it's more than just like a legal obligation in the sense that, of course, I would like to purchase a home. I'm not super stoked about this contract or covenant I have to enter into. And so I do so willingly, but with a sense of I'd rather it be another way. Right. When we're talking about covenants here, we're something that's talking about that's a little bit more volitional, that there is right. an emphasis that the parties are leaning into this that's a relationship, but I think the consequences are things that we tend to underemphasize, at least in like the Western world of view. Right. So that that's a great, I think, transition then to like this doctrine of the covenant of redemption, which is why I jokingly started out with the, I say pactum, you say salutis, which is <laughs> of course like the Latin representation of this idea of the covenant of redemption. So I'm going to give like a quick definition, then I'll throw it back to you and let's just start unpacking this as it were, if this is a suitcase and here it comes on and I throw it up on the bed and I don't know what weird environment we're in where you and I are unpacking a suitcase together, but <laughs> this is the place I put us. So I would say like the, the doctrine of the covenant of redemption is a place to start. And sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the Pactum Salutis or the Council of Peace. That's all from scriptural references across the entire Council of God. But this idea concerns the eternal purpose of the Trinity to communicate the fullness of eternal life to elect sinners through the mediation of Jesus Christ for the glory of Christ. How do you feel about that as a starting point? Yeah, I think it's great. And I think I think one of the things that we have to land as we start out, right, Th- thinking about how this sometimes becomes the all anti-EFS podcast all the time, <laughs> we have to sort of like ground this in theology proper, right? And that's why I yes. say that this covenant is, I like the, I like the term council of peace or the pactum salutis, kind of like strictly translated as like the like the agreement of salvation or something yes. like that. Yep. When right. we talk about covenants, we, we are 
automatically introducing like multiple parties with multiple wills that sometimes are at odds with each other. So it's not that the term itself is bad, but we have to understand it properly. And so when we understand the Pactum Salutis in proper theological categories, we're not talking about some agreement between unequal parties. We're not talking about some agreement where the father kind of proposes it, proposes a course of action and the son agrees to it and the spirit kind of tags along, which is sometimes the idea that we get when we talk about the Pactum Salutis or the Covenant of in reality, what this is, is this is the singular will of God, uh, which the three persons uh, share in common with each other for the salvation of all of God's people. Right, and exactly. so, so the Pactum Salutis is, is a, a, an agreement even isn't even the right term, but that's closer. It's an agreement that all three persons agree on. It's a course of action that the three persons agree on for the salvation of all of God's people. And within that agreement, within that that singular will, each person of the Trinity is assigned a particular outward role in the in the economy of salvation. Right? We remember and we'll talk about this, you know, at some point in the future when I get Adonis Vidu on to talk about his book. But we remember that all of the external operations of the Trinity and the Pactum Salutis is an external operation of the right. of the Trinity. This isn't this isn't a, this is part of why EFS advocates get it wrong when they try to appeal to the Pactum is because it's not an ad intra thing. This is all about the the economy of salvation is all external to the Trinity. All of the works of all of the external acts are all inseparable. So when we say that the father prepares a body for the son and the spirit creates the human nature and the womb of the Virgin Mary, we're not saying that person is the only person acting. So the, the, the pactum salutis is the eternal plan of God to save a people. And it includes in it, not just kind of like the identity of the people who will be saved, but it also includes within it the the means the method right. which involves what role people which which role which person will be assigned in the economy of salvation uh, anthropomorphically speaking right they all engage in all of the operations of the Trinity and they engage equally but which one will be appropriated to that role. Um, and it also it also includes the fact that some people will not be saved. So when we talk about double predestination, this is all wrapped up in this concept of the pactum salutis, is that by, by in light of choosing some to be saved, God is also choosing some not to be saved. Right. So we shouldn't limit this just to like that, that sort of like bare kernel of like, yeah, God chose to save a people. That's the pactum salutis. But everything that encompasses that is is wrapped up in this agreement as well. And so that people know that we've addressed that before, this idea of double predestination, just go back somewhere between episodes one and 235. There's something we talked about where we <laughs> unpacked that whole thing. <laughs> yes. But the bottom line is that scripture is clearly pointing us to the fact that the plan of redemption was included in the eternal decree or counsel of God. So this is why it's a great place to start, because like essentially before there were any other covenants, before right. there were actually any other covenants such that there were people to make covenants with like other parties to make promises to here is God in the Trinity making a promise among himself, so to speak. And I want to be careful because I don't want people to get caught up in the language we're talking about here because the language will inevitably fail us in, in the sense of understanding that this was all volitional on every part of the Trinity. It was all volitional that God was establishing before time itself, a plan of redemption and who would be included in that plan. So in case you don't believe us, I want to bring us to, I think that quintessential scripture, which is in Ephesians one, right? Ephesians one, four in particular and following. So let me read this quote, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, end quote. I mean, man alive, is yeah. that not some beautiful words in terms of understanding what God had engendered for us from before time? And I like what you said. I think what you said is the right preface. In this chapter, what you see is what... Uh, so. I think part of what we provide to our brothers and sisters as listeners is maybe for re- rehearsal for some introduction for others, really fun theological language that you can like drop on your <laughs> zoom parties. And so one of those is pactum salutis. Like if you just say that, so can I impress you for a second with my meme knowledge? Oh man, let's do it. I'm always trying to impress you with my understanding of memes. So the, I feel like there is, maybe this is not true, but there's this common meme and it involves Winnie the Pooh. And first it's like a picture of, Winnie the Pooh in like his normal state. Oh yeah. yeah. Then okay. there's like a picture of Winnie the Pooh, like wearing a monocle and he looks more sophisticated. And so of course the whole point is in the first image to give like the generic term. And then the second image to give like the more sophisticated one. So I feel like here we've got like, you know, like covenant of redemption or council of peace. And the second one, it's like pactum salutis. Yeah, Cause it go. sounds like all like, is that right? You, good usage of that meme. Yes. Yes. I'm okay. Impressed, I really, Jesse. We, okay. We need to put that out on like the Twitter and the Facebook and the yes. interwebs. I'll get on. I'll, I'll have my people get on that. Yes. And I'm, have you, by my people, I mean me. <laughs> it's just your people. It's just and me. here, here's like another place where you already brought this up. This, this economy of redemption, like this yes. idea that there is a sense, a division of labor. And we see that in Ephesians one here, the father is the originator. The son is the executor and the Holy spirit is the applier. But you and I are not making distinction with respect to hierarchy or with the sense that like one part of the Trinity has less volition than the other to make this happen. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and even to take it one step further, and this is a whole different, a whole different conversation, but this is why in part, I'm excited about this series because it forces us at various stages through the different covenants to grapple with these theological concepts. It's not as though when we say that the father is the originator of the plan of salvation, that somehow we're saying that the son and the spirit are yes. not the originator. And that's, uh, right. that's where I think people right. get tripped up, right? So I want to read this passage from Herman Witsius. This is from uh, The Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man. It's uh, book one, chapter two. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think reading the whole thing is important. And I'll, I'll clarify a few things that he says here uh, when we uh, get through it. He says, quote, In order the more thoroughly to understand the nature of the covenant of grace, two things are above all to be distinctly considered. First, the covenant which intervenes between God the Father and Christ the Mediator. Secondly, that testamentary disposition by which God bestows, by an immutable covenant, eternal salvation and everything relative thereunto upon the elect. The former agreement is between God and the Mediator, the latter between God and the elect. This last presupposes the first and is founded upon it. When I speak of the compact between the Father and the Son, I thereby understand the will of the Father giving the Son to be the head and redeemer of the elect, and the will of the Son presenting himself as a sponsor or surety for them. So, a couple quick things to clarify. Within Reformed theology, there are roughly two camps. 
right? I mean, there's a lot of camps, but in in relation to this, there's two camps I'm thinking of. There are those that would talk about the the covenant of grace, which would include the covenant of redemption. And they would just see that as like two parts of a single unfolding agreement, right? God makes this agreement amongst the persons of the Trinity within himself in eternity past. And then the covenant of grace is not a distinct separate covenant. It's simply the the temporal unfolding of that agreement in eternity past. So that's why Witsius is using the language of covenant of grace to talk about what we call the, what we're calling the covenant of redemption. But here he also says that what he's talking about when he talks about this first sense, this first uh, agreement or, or compact is that the father uh, has agreed to give the son as the head of the church. He's, he's agreed that the son will come to be the mediator of his people, of God's people. And the son has agreed to go and be that mediator. And so we have to use this accommodated language, right? James Dolezal was yes. on recently on um, the particular ba- uh, Baptist podcast. And he made that point that like, even our language is, you know, sequential and complex, in right. terms of our composite is a better word. So so we understand that we are are talking about a single simple divine essence that cannot cannot be submitted to any composition or change or sequencing, but in order to even think or talk about that because we're sequenced composite creatures, we have to do so in composite ways. So that's what's happening in this quote, right? When he talks about the will of the father doing this, it's not as though the son so it says the will of the father, which is giving the son to be the head and redeemer of the elect. The flip side of that is that the son is willing to be the head and redeemer of the elect. But that's not two different wills. It's not even two expressions of the same will in the way that uh, Wayne Grudem uses it in his systematic theology. Those two persons are willing exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. In, in in ways or respective of their persons. It's not different things they're willing in modes, you know, modes appropriate to their personhood or something like that. It's the exact same thing, but we can't understand what that means. So we have to sort of use this accommodated language to get there. And I think that that's important. So Witsius on this is phenomenal. And he, he goes on to say that the scripture, quote, the scripture represents the father in the economy of our salvation as demanding the obedience of the son, even unto death and upon condition of that obedience, promising him in his turn, that name, which is above every name. Right. And it goes on to sort of enumerate what the father agrees to, what the son agrees to. The one criticism that I have of Witsius is he's, he's taking this position, this other camp, which is a more, uh, I think it's probably the majority position, but I don't really like it all that much where the, the pactum salutis is seen as a, an agreement between the father and the son. It's not so much involving the spirit who kind of comes along in the process of things a little bit later in terms of this agreement. I don't like that so much, but it's, it's a good way to start off the conversation to look at it and see, this really is about the persons of the Trinity sort of planning how not only to accomplish salvation, but how right. to accomplish salvation yes. and everything that that entails. And there's, isn't there so much beauty in this? Because what we're saying is that there is a unity. There is only one divine will. Right. At the same time, and notice I'm not saying the word, but I'm saying at the same time, there is each of the persons of the Trinity contributing to that volitionally and with equal preeminence in accomplishing and making that happen. Method and means and mode, all of this comes together in ways that our mind would do a somersault if it could even possibly come to a place where it could understand what's happening here. Right. So I'm not saying that if everybody 
works in finance, they would understand theology better. But what I am saying is that <laughs> if everybody had worked in di- finance, they would understand theology better because you had me at the word surety, which yes. is definitely a financial term. So I, and what I've been most impressed with, what, what really draws me into this covenant or redemption is Jesus' role in particular because of what Hebrew says. So there's this concept that let's say, and I'm just going to say, let's pick a place. Let's pick a company. One that's in the news. How about GameStop? Because we talked about GameStop even on this podcast. So let's say that GameStop wanted to borrow money and they just want to do that. The mechanism they're going to do that with is by issuing a bond. It's just they're taking out a loan and they're getting that money from borrowers like you and I. What they might do to convince us that they're credit worthy, that they could actually repay the money that they borrowed, is they would get something called an external credit enhancement. And one example of an external credit enhancement, meaning it's not from them, somebody else is going to come alongside and say, yes, GameStop will pay you back and we'll take care of it. That would be an actual surety bond, meaning they would say, we'll step in as mediator. We'll step in from outside of this whole thing, transcendent of the relationship that you have with GameStop. And if GameStop fails, we'll come in to make sure that you're made whole, that everything is made right, that you're brought into right relationship. And so the position of Christ in the covenant redemption is twofold. In the first place, he is the surety. And that's a word used in Hebrews 7.22, which says, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the surety of a better covenant. And so a surety is one who becomes responsible for the legal obligations of another and ensures that they will be met regardless of the performance of the obligated party. And so I fall on my knees when I think about this, because here's Jesus Christ coming through. It would be enough if God himself would establish a plan from before even time existed, like land before time style, that here is God in his thoughtfulness, in his wisdom saying, I'm going to draw people unto myself. But it's even more than that to say that I recognize that these people will not be able to meet the demands that I myself establish. Going back to our series on God as just and justifier. And so here he makes a way, he provides the surety. Here's the external credit enhancement so that we don't have to worry about performing and achieving in some way that would allow us to have this covenant with him because we deserve the punishment. Here's Jesus. And in the covenant of redemption, Christ undertook to atone for the sins of his people by bearing the necessary punishment and to meet the demands of the law for them. And so by taking the place of delinquent me, like delinquent Jesse, he becomes the last Adam and is as such also, as you said, the head of the covenant, the representative of all those whom the father has given to him. Yeah. Yeah. And you, as, as the astute listener might notice, some of these lines between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace are blurry, right? Of course. Was Jesse just talking about the covenant of redemption or the covenant of grace? The answer <laughs> yes. is yes. Right. So that that's why there's these, this disagreement. That's why some people take the position and I'm becoming more and more convinced of it, that the covenant of grace is really just the logical unfolding or the temporal unfolding of yes. the agreement, which the person's made. And and I want to I want to maybe turn a corner a little bit, right? Because I know that we we went like forty five hours over our time last week, so I want to try to stay within the hour here. So I want to turn the corner a little bit and talk about what what does this actually mean for us, though? Like it, it's great to have like this sort of ethereal knowledge about what the persons of the Trinity agreed to in eternity past, but what how does this actually tie into our life and piety here on the ground? What do you think, Jesse? 
Oh, I didn't expect that question. I was like waiting for you to like totally unpack. Jesse's okay. like bobbing his head, like, "Yeah, here we go, yeah, here we go." Was, and then listen, it's like, "You, you had me again." Into so you. he's like a he's like a scared newscaster that didn't know that the feed was coming to him. <laughs> How about you just tell me what the application is? Okay, so here here's what I would say is that this gives us because we're talking about things like surety and the plan of God, the eternal counsel of God, the establishment of what God's plan that nothing can thwart this. What I think at the at the face on the face at the top of this, it gives us a sense of confidence Yes, that God has a plan for his people and he's called them not out of circumstance. He hasn't looked down the corridors of time and somehow assessed how they will respond to this message of Christianity or the gospel in particular. What he said is I have designed this and I am the author of it. And so I think at the, the face, it starts us off with humility and it starts us off with a sense of confidence that God accomplishes that which he has proposed and that going back to, maybe I'm giving like too many things now, going back to this idea of like Paul giving like indicative imperatives that what God has commanded, he brings about in his wisdom and his power. And it starts with salvation. It doesn't start with like fruit of the spirit. It starts with salvation. Like this is the quintessential thing that God has established for himself. That is, he will save. He's creator and he is also savior. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think as I as I think and I've pondered about the covenant of redemption, because I think it is really easy for us to slip into this mode of like, oh, yeah, that's some interesting bit of theological minutia that like there was this agreement in eternity past. But what, what we're talking about is the father promising that if the son, this is why it's called a covenant, right? I said it's a little bit different in, in how it's a covenant, but this is why the language of the covenant of, of redemption is strong in terms of being covenant, is that in this sort of anthropomorphic register that we're talking in, this this accommodated revelation of what's going on prior to, uh, prior to creation, the father as sort of the representative suzerain of the Trinity, right? We know he's not... We're not going that direction. We're not EFS people, right? The father is not greater than the son in in the internal ad intra of the Trinity. But in terms of how he has revealed himself in, in the scriptures, the language that he's given us to understand what the Trinity is, the father does seem to take this, this sense of preeminence in the Trinity. And so the father sort of taking that sense of preeminence uh, in this accommodated fashion goes to his son more or less and says, if you will obey and fulfill this covenant of redemption, if you will go and obtain the redemption of these people, then I promise you the blessings of the covenant are that you shall have a spotless bride to be your people for all eternity. Right. right. And the son then says, this I will do. Right. This, this is, um, out of Isaiah, there's the passage where, where God calls out and he says, who will go for me? And Isaiah right. says, I will go, Lord, right? That's a that's an image of what's happening in the covenant of redemption. Is the father in this accommodated register says, Who will go for me to redeem this people that I have so I have elected? And the son says, I will go. And so the reason that that yields assurance for us as a Christian is because the promise, the covenant promise of the father to his son is that all of those whom the, the son will die for, those whom the son will set free, the father will set free indeed, right? So the, 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 the ground of our assurance, the reality of our assurance, and the reason that our salvation can be secure is because the promise that the son made to us is a fulfillment of the promise that the father made to the son. 
And right. so in order for us to think that the son may somehow not fulfill his promise to us, we would have to believe that somehow the eternal omnipotent father uh, would somehow not fulfill his promise to the eternal omnipotent son. Right. So what, what force in all of reality could cause that to, to come to be? And that's part of why Paul's grounding is there's nothing in all of reality that can take us from the hand of the son. Not because, not because we somehow have placed ourselves there and we are going to keep ourselves there. Not even because the son has such a firm grip on us, although that's true, right. but because it's the father who has placed us in the hand of the son because he promised the son he would do so. And so yes. that's why this language, even though we understand that it's partial, it's incomplete, it's it's sort of a, a an illusor, not illusory in the negative sense of the word, but it's it's sort of this ethereal glimpse behind the curtain of of eternity, of this sort of primal ad extra operation of the Trinity. This glimpse that we get, it's where all of our assurance is grounded in, right? When you look at the Westminster Confession, it's talking about assurance. It's it says that. The, the foundation of our assurance, and this is a paraphrase, but the foundation of our assurance is the divine promises of the gospel. And that first promise of the gospel was not made from God to his people. Right, it was from, exactly. from the father yes. to the son in eternity yes. past. Um, so, so, you know, like right here, um, looking in back in Witsius, it says here, um, let me get the right quote. His surety ship, speaking of Christ, his surety ship uh, consists in this, that he himself undertook to perform that condition, which without consistently with the justice of God, the grace and promises of God could not reach unto us, but being once performed, they were infallibly to come to the children of the covenant, unless then we would make void the surety ship of Christ and gratify the Sassinians, the worst perverters of scripture, right? So, so he's saying that the covenant of grace, and we'll get to this, right? Next week will be the covenant of works, and then we'll talk about the covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace is the promise that the Son will apply the redemption to us, right? It's it's first made with Christ, and then it's made with us in Christ. And the covenant of grace is basically Christ saying, I will be your surety ship. But right. the covenant of redemption is basically Christ promising the Father that he will be our surety ship. So it really is the flip side of the same coin, that it's the same promises made from a different perspective in a lot of ways. And that should give us so much comfort. It should give us so much peace because we know that God is going to do the right thing. And he has promised that he will give his, his, his son a bride. He will give his son right. a bride. And not only will he give his son that bride, that bride will be pure and spotless on the day of the wedding feast. And that, that right there is just that that's the promise of the gospel encapsulated just in this one doctrine. We need to emphasize that the term surety ship is in a bear market. We need to bring that back because yes. that's so, so good. And I feel like everybody who's listening should say it with me right now. Surety ship. That's like a mouthful. <laughs> but here's the bottom line is before we get to any other covenants, I think what you're emphasizing is we need to understand that it's not just God promised this. He promised this within the scope of the Trinity yes. and that there was going to be real repercussions with it. And essentially, again, to almost sound like we're pushing this too far, that when we say covenant redemption, we're saying that God himself made a covenant with himself in the scope of the Trinity, which means that everything we said about a covenant being a promise with consequences still applied there. Right. That's how sure God was that he was going to make this happen. And that's how, how high the stakes were 
that there were still consequences, even though we can't conceive of a reality in which God would not come through in this way. Right. And so this changes, I think, how we should feel about our salvation. Salvation is owned by God. It is the purview of God and God alone. And we don't have to just take our word for it. You can look to the scriptures and see that he manifested that with a covenant and it's right. called the covenant of redemption. So to me, this is like the right place to start. It should make us feel warm and fuzzy. I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you probably feel like you want to run through something right now, right? Having heard all this. Yeah. I mean, with my God, I could leave over a wall. <laughs> That's true. The, listen, I thought you were going to say run through a wall. So I started laughing and now it seems like I'm like that dude that's a jerk. That's laughing at actual scripture <laughs> that you quoted back to me. So yeah. there's, there's that whole thing. But this is why I love the way that you kind of turn this to look inward. This sense of that. What does this mean to us? What should it mean to us? And we quoted from Ephesians one and the nice thing about like Ephesians in particular is like, there's just a lot of big words in there. Like there's like a lot of heavy flavors. So like if you're a person like just eating, like I'm not like, I don't have a fancy palate. I, I think food tastes delicious a lot of times, but there's all the more something glorious when like, let's say a chef or the person who's prepared it for you explains all of the robust, the beautiful flavors that yeah. exist in that meal. And so in Ephesians one, there's all these big words. This is big stuff. And so one of the things that I love to use like as a tool to help me to do this kind of thing is something like a program like Logos, for instance, which allows us to like go in and to assess and to understand and to give, receive commentary and focus about these things to really bring this recipe, these flavors into our mind in a more profound way. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's such a great program and we've, we've been uh, fortunate enough to be sponsored for several episodes here uh, by Logos Bible Software. And, you know, I've used, as I mentioned this last week, I've used a lot of different Bible software, everything from, from a full blown Logos Bible software that you purchase to like trying to hack together your own set of, of like Greek tools by different right. free websites. Right. And, and you can, I mean, you can get by doing some of that stuff. Um, but if you really want to get, get at it, we're in a time where this stuff isn't available. You know, we, sometimes we marvel at the fact that like John Calvin did all this stuff without Logos. And I think sometimes we long for a day where we can do all this without a tool like this, but I don't really understand why I think John Calvin would slap us in the face and be like, why aren't you, why aren't you making use of this amazing thing that God has given you? Right. So, you know, most recently I've discovered uh, a new feature in their latest release where you can, uh, not only can you create a reading plan that's not new, but you can create a, a reading plan that you do at your own pace. And so Super basically cool. what it does is instead of assigning you specific dates, it just chops the text up for you into digestible chunks, usually based on a chapter, like a chapter length or something like that. But it, it really basically, it says like, all right, if you want to read it, we're not going to tell you how fast you need to read it. You don't even need to commit to how fast you're going to read right. it. But here's some here's some digestible portions, right? Read a chapter, and then when you're done with that, read a different chapter on a different day. And I think like they just it just keeps getting better, right? I've been using Logos since I think version five, um, which was good. But now that we're on version, uh, we're on the newest version. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal tool. And there's so many resources. You know, I I looked up a passage earlier while we were uh, while I was in church listening to the sermon, and and it actually tells you like the passage guide, the definition of that is the quickest way to see any time that this verse is referenced in any of the right. resources you own. Right? right. So in, in just the, the quick typing of a, a resource, I can look at every single book and commentary 
and confession and everything that I have loaded into my system. So you really can't replicate that by just like sheer grit and determination. There's there's no way you could do that in any reasonable amount of time. So really check it out. You can uh, you can hit up reform uh, logos.com slash reform brotherhood and you can get a discount on uh, on any of their packages. And um, even if you don't use the discount, it's worth every penny that you're going to pay for this software um, to, to get all of these tools and all of these resources. It's pretty phenomenal. You and I are like really, really like parsimonious when it comes to recommendations, so to yes. speak, because we always want to give something or to talk about something out that we actually really believe in that we use. And this is one of those things. So what I hear you saying is that if he were alive today, John Calvin would use the logos.com backslash reform brotherhood link of and course. for himself yes. purchase a copy of, of some version of logos. And yes. to your point, here's the thing. You and I are, I would say, like different interactions with the scripture with respect to like our responsibilities in our churches and even like our own sense of a calling and vocation. And so as a person, like if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, listen, I'm just a person. Listen, listen, loved one, brother and sister, I am you. I am that person. I'm not a pastor. I love my church and I serve my church in various capacities as the Lord has given me qualification to lead and blessing to participate in. And like you said, I love the reading plan feature. It's like really, really super helpful. It's something I've actually used for quite some time because it allows you to interact with the scriptures in a new and profound way. And we're talking about things here with respect to like this, these covenants, we're trying to understand the full counsel of God and to see how there is this weaving of this covenant redemption, like throughout the scriptures and logos is one of the ways in which you can really see that profoundly. And so I do commend it without reservation. So I hope that people will go to that link and just try it out. You can, you can sample some stuff, try it out. Uh, You will not be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that probably just about does it for our uh, episode today. Uh, We've got some exciting stuff coming down the pipe here. You may have noticed that uh, this episode launched on Friday instead of a Wednesday. We are trying to build some space to do some more stuff earlier in the week that you'll be hearing about uh, coming in the future here. And, you know, we we love getting emails, voicemails. You can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. We read all those emails. We categorize them. Uh, When one comes up, just like it did last week, that, that would make a really good episode or a short, sometimes a short question comes up. We can uh, introduce as part of our episode or can kind of kick us off on another line of thinking. Uh, we love to do that. We love hearing from our listeners. And you can also leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767, which spells bros. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and you can check out the website, reformbrotherhood.com. There's all sorts of ways to get involved. You can buy t-shirts, you can support us on Patreon, you can just listen and share our episodes. Uh, but we love to see people getting involved and getting engaged in this. We are all in this together. And I hope that again, so many listeners will join us. I again, I'm going to reiterate this challenge, especially with respect to voicemails. Here's the problem, Tony. I think that people, they listen to us and you and I are not like, I would say people when they describe us would not use words like brief or succinct. And so I sense that because of that, in some ways we set a poor example because when we receive voicemails, oftentimes they're of the longer nature, which doesn't mean they're not great, but they're also not brief. And again, sometimes they include like personal identifying information, like credit card numbers, social security numbers, or mainly just people's phone numbers. That was like a really poorly executed joke. So 
please call us. But the brief email, uh, brief emails, brief emails are fine as well. But brief voicemails are like the best because again, we're we're stacking them up and accumulating them for some question cast episodes. And so, especially as you're listening to this episode series on covenants, it might be a great time to get your questions in. And if they're brief, there's probably a greater chance that they will be featured in an episode. This is factually correct. Yes, it is. Thank you for using those words. Yes. Well, when Jesse, I say pactum, you say salutis. <laughs> pactum. Pactum. Salutis. salutis. Somebody write a rap. Somebody get on that. I don't know who would do that, but somebody get on that rap. Well, watch what I'm about to do here. Tony, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>